Hello and welcome to another edition of Off Camera. I'm your host, Sam Jones. And in this episode, I sit down with actor, writer, director, and theater punk, Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins told me that it's impossible for any one actor to be in 35 seminal films, but he's probably come closer than most doing just that. His work in The Shawshank Redemption, Mystic River, Dead Man Walking, and The Player, to name only a few, speak to more than his ability to invest any character with extraordinary humanity, be they good, evil, or like most of us, somewhere in between. It also speaks to an artistic integrity that's rare to find in Hollywood these days. He won't compromise the quality or the message of the films he wants to do. And if that makes it tough to get one made, well, so be it. He knows his legacy may not matter to the industry or to the public, but it matters to him. To me, that defines an artist. In this episode, you'll hear about some of Tim's lesser-known projects, which I happen to think are some of his best. While still in college, he founded the Actors Gang, a group that changed the face of L.A. theater, and 30 years later continues to produce some of today's most compelling stage plays. It also happens to be changing the lives of men and women in our penal system. And fans of Parks and Rec and The Office might be surprised to know that at age 32, Tim wrote, directed, and starred in Bob Roberts, which largely presaged the mockumentary genre. And that's where we get to my real agenda. With Bob Roberts, Tim Robbins not only proved to be a genius auteur, he proved to be a generous and collaborative spirit who gave a young still photographer his start in the business. Yep, that photographer was me, folks, and no exaggeration. If it wasn't for Tim, I likely wouldn't be sitting here now, and you wouldn't be about to hear from one of the most inspiring people in or outside of the business today. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hey, Tim. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. You know, you're, you are my favorite kind of guest for this show because you do so many things. You act, you write, you direct, you play music. You started a theater company when you were in college that is still going strong. Yes. Right? Over 30 years ago, you started the Actors Gang mm-hmm. and created a community, which I find so... Just, I feel like you've inspired a lot of people by doing that, and you've given a lot of people an opportunity to, to get into this business in a way that's not like the typical path. And I think that's totally inspiring, and, um, and I also have to give you a personal thank you because you gave me my start in this business, and I was thinking about it last night. I don't know if I'd be sitting here doing this if it wasn't for you. Oh, wow. Uh, I was a photojournalist working for the Associated Press, and I got a call... And it was you and the producer on your film, Bob Roberts, which is your directorial debut. And right. You wrote it, you started it, and then you had seen a picture of mine in Vanity Fair and said, this is the kind of photographer we need on this film. And, and, uh, and you gave me my entree into this business. So, I, I honestly, well, I have to thank you. I brought you a picture that I hang on my wall. This is a picture Sam took on the set of Bob Roberts. It was a cold and rainy day in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's and, right. Uh, and you were in revolutionary garb with a modern umbrella. Yes. <laughs> Such a, you know, this is the director at work. That's right. <laughs> and I see that I signed it in blue pencil, so yeah. it was definitely the photographer at work at the beginning of his career. 292. Well, Long time ago, but... Yeah, but you know, it's, it, it brings up a question right off the bat, because we had Jack Black on this show as well, and and he said that he got an, a chance to audition for Bob Roberts because he was in the Actors Gang. Mm-hmm. And you basically said, anyone who's in the Actors Gang, come and audition for my film. And, and I wondered if that's a philosophy you've had from the beginning of, of like, giving 
new people a chance or creating a community around people that aren't necessarily like, you know, like it seems like you take chances like that. Well, I, the Actors Gang has always been for me a um, an incredible um, laboratory to cr- try new stuff in. And uh, I think that one of the, one of the things that happens when you get some acclaim or some notoriety as an actor. There's a tendency towards uh, acting differently, uh, surrounding yourself with um, uh, different kinds of people, going to different kinds of parties. And I just found early on that when that happened to me, it it felt uh, a little less real than I would feel when walking into the theater to work with uh, on a play with the Actors King. So I always carved out my time from the very start, even when I was working in episodics, when I was just starting out, I would tell my agents, listen, I'm taking three months off to do a play. And they would think, are you crazy? You just did this this spot and this spot. You're building momentum. You've got to be able to keep going to auditions. I said, no, I won't. I, I don't want to audition. for. I don't want to have the temptation. So I took, a, I took it kind of from the start as this thing that was an essential part of me, which was where I started, which was the theater in New York City. And I, I felt that that was, if I, if I stopped that, it would be fraudulent. It would be like, okay, thanks for getting me here. Now I'm going to be a movie star and I'm just going to forget all about you guys, right? Wow, where do you think you get that? Like most people would probably listen to their agent and go, okay, well, if, if, if it's happening and it's here, it might not be here tomorrow, I better grab onto it. Well, if it's not going to be here tomorrow, then it probably wasn't worth it in the first place. I mean, I, I just figured, listen, I have a great time doing it. I learned so much from doing it. I want to be a writer and a director. This allows me to learn how to do that. I, I directed and wrote uh, like five plays before I wrote before and directed Bob Roberts. It gave me the chance to understand how to rewrite. In a, you know, We would rehearse, and I'd go home and rewrite from midnight till four in the morning, you know, on plays. And so we would conceive of a play and, and workshop it and write it and direct it all within the course of like five weeks and have it up by, by the end of that. And so I kind of understood early on this is incredible school for me. And it, I am, yes, I am producing something, a, a piece of work, but I'm also uh, learning a tremendous amount about working with actors, and most importantly, rewriting, not, not, not uh, holding something sacred. Right, like you know, seeing it, workshopping it yeah, on it the day. Yeah, it doesn't work. Rewrite it, you know. Don't be sacred about your work. So when you, when you started the Actors Gang, you were still in college, right? You went to UCLA? It, I started it at, at, in my last semester of college. I started with a group of other people. Uh, and we all, uh, we all were kind of like the punk rockers, the misfits, the outcasts of the UCLA theater department. We were you know, marginalized in that way. We were punk rockers. We wanted to do theater that was vital and about uh, the society we were living in and energetic and sweat-filled. And when we started, we started with this very obscure um, uh, Dadaist play from 1902 called Ubu the King, which is a uh, really scatological um, exploration of, of, of human behavior. Uh, centered around this one guy named Ubu, the, this big fat guy named Ubu the King, right. who I played with a big fat suit. And it was, I, I did the first at UCLA, and, and 
I, I then took it, uh, I graduated and then took it out into the Los Angeles theater scene. Found a theater, we had no money, found a theater that they would let me do it at midnight. Uh, we had to share with other okay. plays. And we'd go in there at like 10.30 when the show was finished and we'd rearrange the set and figure out how we could do our show in there that, that night. And it was a huge hit and ran for six months and it, it really established the Actors Gang with the critical community. And I have to say, back then it was great because the LA Times came, the LA Examiner came, the LA Weekly, the LA Reader, they all came to my first show that I ever directed. At 12.30 at night. At 12 at midnight, yeah, yeah. See, yeah. that's crazy to have a hit that people have to wait until midnight to yeah, go to. Yeah, and it, was, and it was great because we were getting a lot of people that had never seen theater before. They thought it was, they heard about it, it was like this, you know. And I imagine a lot of people who already had some drinks before. Yeah, 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 <laughs> or something else. Yeah. <laughs> so it was this, um, it, it was really, uh, you know, it was, it was what propelled us into um, being a theater company. So you never thought I should go join a theater company? Like, where do you where do you get the sensibility to say I'm just going to start a theater company? Like, was it because there wasn't one out there that fit you? Well, it was more that I I had my ideas. We had our ideas about what we wanted theater to be, and I had been directing. I directed my first play when I was a sophomore in high school. So you're kidding in no, New York? Yeah, at Stuyvesant High School, and I directed a play a year in junior year and senior year. And um, uh, that was my f focus when I went to college. I wanted to direct. I wanted to, uh, um, I didn't particularly care for the acting courses. I took them, but I, I, I was more interested in, in becoming a theater director. And so actually during Ubu the King, I got my first professional job on St. Elsewhere. Um, okay, on this TV show. Yeah, the first uh, three shows of St. Elsewhere. And um, that for me at the time was kind of like, because I'd been auditioning for a year and I had, was not getting anything. I, I just was almost giving up on it. But I, I was playing a, a, a kind of a thug, a terrorist. And for some reason, my attitude sh uh, matched with the casting director and the director at the time. Because <laughs> my attitude was like, I want to do theater, I want to do punk rock theater. I don't, I don't care about this TV stuff. So I eventually, when I got the first check, I realized, oh, well, this can pay for a lot more theater than my pizza delivering job at Jacopo's. So maybe I... You worked at Jacopo's. Yeah, maybe, maybe, I would, maybe this would be a better way to proceed if I, if I was, had a better attitude when I walked in the door with these uh, casting directors. And so I started to work more and more. And then it got to this point where I was uh, making films and cut to many years later, I'm, I'm uh, two summers ago, I'm in Spoleto, Italy with my production of the, that directed of Midsummer Night's Dream by Shakespeare. And I'm s sitting there in the audience watching it. It ends, there's a standing ovation. The head of the festival rushes up to the stage with his hands like this. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is great. This is in a, a, a world audience. This is, you know, a major festival in Europe. Afterwards, I'm talking to people at this uh, party they threw, and there's people say, comparing my production to Peter Brook's Midsummer Night's Dream. And I'm sitting there in, in Spoleto, Italy, realizing this is it. This is what I wanted. This is it. What, what an amazing moment to have. Yeah, it was, it was really amazing because, yes, I love all the, all the stuff I've done in, 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 in film. I, I, I'm 
thrilled about that success, and, 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 and it's offered me such amazing opportunities. But I started out with this dream of being on the world stage. And, and it was at that moment in Spoleto that I, I, it, just all, it just was this revelation of, oh my God, this is it. This is what I wanted. Hearing you tell that story, I feel like, you know, from the beginning, there's been a totally different approach to, like, it really is about the craft for you more than anything else. Well, it also allows you the opportunity to create something wholly new. You know, you don't have to run it through executive producers, studio heads. Right. It's, it's, it's all I, whatever, whatever I can conceive of or, and work with the group. And when I work with the group, I bring an idea in. And if it flies, we go with it. If it doesn't, we, we put it aside. But I have that opportunity, which is rare. And I feel really blessed to be able to have that the kind of laboratory, as I was saying, is this idea that you can... Um, Bringing this wild idea, but uh, but I do get the sense that something must have happened, like like when you were young and you first found the theater, was there any question that you would ever do anything else? You know, I was a jock growing up. I played hockey, street hockey. I played softball, and I played tackle football. And twelve, thirteen is around that time when you you make that kind of decision. Uh, who am I going to hang out with in high school? I hung out with these guys in grade school. Right. I have a new choice, a new school. Who, who, who are my, who's my tribe, you know? Right. And I didn't feel it with the jocks, and I was a little bit of a late bloomer, too, so I wasn't physically up to playing football or, you know, with those kinds of, you know, uh, guys. So my first discovery of theater was odd because there was a street theater program in the summer. And my sister brought me in to the theater, and the director asked me if I wanted to be in the play. And I said, yeah, oh, sure. And I wound up doing this crazy play on the streets of New York as my first theatrical, real theatrical experience. Then I kind of got addicted to it. And at the same time, I was playing hockey at, at, on a team, a CYO league team. And so I remember one distinct moment where I was needing to get to the theater because I was running Spotlight on this thing called the Angels of Light, who were originally from San Francisco. In San Francisco, they were called the Cockettes, okay? okay. So it was like this, it was like this, not really drag, because it was a lot more elaborate than a drag show. It was, you know, glitter, and they do big production numbers from 1930s uh, Hollywood musicals, and, um, and a lot of cross-dressing, a lot of, uh, but there were men and women in it. And, and it was so outrageous and so fantastical. And I remember this moment at needing to get to this rehearsal, and it's the end of hockey practice, and I go up to the coach and I say, Coach, when's the next rehearsal? <laughs> and he goes, rehearsal? What, are you quit? <laughs> so I was like, oh, my God. I just, my, 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 I, I guess I have to cover this. Okay, I'll hide that from now on. I, I didn't mean rehearsal. I meant practice. And then went to the theater, worked on this crazy show that any of these guys on the hockey team, they would have beaten up any of these guys in the show. Right. right? And so this is where my dividing line became. You know, this is the thing that's bringing me joy. This is the thing I'm doing for, for physical activity. I, I don't, I'm not comfortable 
in this world anymore. And so I tried to keep playing hockey, but I found myself gravitating more and more towards the theater. Amazing. And the magic that was in there. And the reason I was involved in that particular show is my first girlfriend was this um, uh, girl named Eloise Harris, who was the, the sister of George Harris, who ran the Angels of Light. And the Angels of and he was called now by this point, not George anymore, but hibiscus, because he'd done the, the journey through San Francisco. <laughs> this, this wasn't a dividing line. This and, was like a chasm. Oh, it was huge. It was huge. And by the way, George Harris, or hibiscus, is a famous photo of a, of a blonde-haired kid putting a, 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 a flower in the end of a rifle. Oh, yeah. That's George. That's, no that's, kidding. That's, uh, that's hibiscus, yeah. And so this was a wild kind of, you know, childhood uh, in Greenwich Village. And yeah. one, one thing people don't understand about Greenwich Village in the 60s and the 70s is that it was a tremendously, there were tremendously progressive people in the village at the time. And all the whole folk music scene and the beatniks and the, and the poetry and all that stuff was there. But what, what is never portrayed in movies or in stories about this is how, how reactionary a lot of the neighborhood was towards these new people. Oh, really? Yeah, oh yeah. Just not tolerant at all ah. of blacks, gays, hippies. It was, it was drag like, queens. It was, yeah, drag queens. <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was walking this fine line in my teenage years of like becoming the person I wanted to become versus surviving in the old neighborhood. I mean, I, I assume your parents had to have had an influence on, on that, but but for someone to come up and already in college want to start their own company and have the confidence to say, I want to do something different rather than I, I want to make it or I want to fit in. I mean, was there encouragement in your family to follow your own path and make your own decisions? And I mean, was, it, was that just sort of the natural setting? Well, I, I think it's more that you observe your father and your mother following their own path and making their own decisions, um, difficult decisions sometimes, you know. When um, I remember distinctly a, a, a decision my father had to make about taking an A&R job at a record company, it would have provided a lot of money, but it would have, he just said at the time, he just, I, I'm, I'm a musician, I'm a composer, I can't do that. And now, this is a difficult decision to make, and many years later he said, you know, I think I, I regret that decision. I said, I said, you shouldn't, because it inspired me completely, and it was what brought me the uh, will to say no. And my mother was, they were both progressive regarding uh, civil rights and against the Vietnam War. And a couple distinct moments really helped define my path were when my mother woke me up one morning and told me that Martin Luther King was shot. And the look on her face and, and her uh, description of the importance of this man to me at the time, in 1968, I was 10 years old. Uh, was really profoundly moving and a, a very clear memory. And the other was when my mom woke me up in the morning and said, hey, your sister, my sister Adele, who is a freshman at Antioch College in Ohio at the time, she said, your sister, you should be very proud. Your sister Adele was, was arrested yesterday for a protest against the Vietnam War. And so it's that kind of... Um, uh, that kind of environment is the kind of environment I grew up in. So that kind of environment is that is is at the time, 
particularly you know early on when there's not a mass movement against something or when when people are still being marginalized and ostracized for joining a movement of that kind when your parents are already on that page it tells you maybe people are wrong it's a question authority kind of uh, uh, upbringing I think I had yeah well I, we should jump into Bob Roberts because what you've just spoken about with your influences I think Bob Roberts is one of those films that it's aged very well and and the film is you play a Republican senatorial candidate named Bob Roberts who's also a folk singer and is this really charismatic guy who is trying to win the the senatorial race and he's a really evil capitalistic fascist guy and uh, the whole film is a mockumentary of sorts and a satire but it follows a campaign what's amazing about that film is that it's almost less satirical and out there today than it was when it came out. Mm -hmm. Like now you watch it and you go, oh yeah, like this is Trump. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I wanted to talk about that film because I, I feel like it's sort of, it was sort of the beginning of the idea that, that you can make this really entertaining satirical work that, that works on a humorous level, almost like absurdist Monty Python sketches, but also had really scathing commentary and deep social beliefs and 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 yet it could be completely engrossing and didn't feel like the message was hitting you over the head mm -hmm. and I think that probably if you hadn't had the actors gang you wouldn't know how to workshop and create something like that right, um, right. but what I remember is the script every day uh, at the beginning of the day there would be new pages and they would be a different color you know so You'd have to go get your new pages. And by the time that film ended, my script looked like a rainbow. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I remember, you know, the looks on, like, the AD's faces and, the, and some of the... Actors, the too, yeah. coordinators, like, yeah. oh, my God, there's, there's new scenes. And, and I got the sense that at the end of each day, you were madly rewriting the movie. I was, yeah. It can always be better. And you find, after you finish shooting, it can still be better. Well, it sounds like... You're talking about the theater where it can change every like you yeah. can keep changing it and yeah. keep changing it. Yeah. And it must have been hard for you to lock picture on those films. Well, yeah, but at that point I'd already exhausted all possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll talk about that a little bit because, um, you know, when I was on set, I was 23 years old, and and um, and you seemed like, you know, you had had it all together. But I think about it now, being the age I am, and looking back. You were pretty young, and it was the first film you'd ever directed. Were you scared, or were you just just so in oh, love with the I process? Oh, I was terrified. I think we posted a, a thing on the, in the production office at my desk. It was a bunch of uh, um, Matt Groening uh, pictures, and I was the shaky newcomer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, terror is okay. Fear is okay when you're when you're about to do a project because it makes you disciplined and it makes you work harder. Um, the, the worst enemy of uh, a production is the overconfident one. They, 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 because uh, there can always be more, and there's always questions. And I was really fortunate right before Bob Roberts, like a few months before I finished working with Robert Altman on the player. Yeah, and and knowing that I was going to do the Bob Roberts after the player, I had an acute eye honed on Robert Altman and his process. 
One of the major oh, things so you I'm, knew go, when you were in the player, you were actually sort of scouting and and taking notes on. I was, I was. That's so smart. It, but I had been taking notes with all the directors I'd worked with, but now I got to work with my hero because he was uh, when I was. What first made done, him your hero? Nashville, Nashville, first movie I saw in my life that I realized movies are awesome. You know, I've I'd seen movies before that, but this one just blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, this is an art form. Was it the life and energy in his films that, that seemed so much greater than other films? It was the life, the energy, and the anarchy. There was a, a sense that anything could happen and that you're, you're observing something that is very special and real and true. And to see him work and to see his process was a great gift to be able to have right before directing my first film. And one of the things that was uh, most illuminating, early on, there was a question, you know, um, someone had, and they came to him and said, Bob, what, what do you, you know, what, what should, and he says, you know what, I don't know. What do you think? And I thought, wow, because I work with kind of semi-autocratic directors before, and he's not Altman at all, but I worked with people that were just bullheaded and knew everything, right? And, and wound up maybe not knowing it completely or not making the right decision. Altman was a, could easily have defined himself as the auteur, the expert, sure. the genius, but he was so humble in his approach. Now, I actually think he did know the answer to the question, but was involving people in that way because he wanted everyone thinking that way on his set. And he wanted everyone involved at dailies. And he wanted everyone, you know, we actually had dailies for the player, you know, where we'd go and sit in a room and, and watch them together and have wine and, and talk about the day's work. And if there was a mistake made, you know, it would be, you know, okay, we got to fix that. But, but all this process of taking an idea from the craft service person, you know, that this idea that everyone here has a mind and a, a conception of what it could be, what, uh, what do other people think? So funny you say that because one of the things that struck me the most on Bob Roberts was that you had an open dailies room in the hotel mm -hmm. and anyone on the cast or crew could, was invited to watch dailies. Mm -hmm. And I went every day and watched them. And I feel like I went to film school on that film because to be able to go and watch dailies and see how the work looked on the screen, it was such, it was a huge benefit, even as just the still photographer, knowing what was going on. Yeah. Did you see that as knowing that that would bring the crew together more and, and they would work harder? Well, every single film I had done up until that, or almost every, had dailies. And it was a, a, a ritual that I, I fear is lost yeah. now in the industry. Uh, I had one director that would not let me come to see dailies because he said, I'll be honest with you, I will say rude things and I don't want you to hear them. But um, other than that one person, it was open. You could go see the process. You could see your work as it evolves. Um, it's, it's a great way to learn how to act on film when you see, because when you make a mistake, I mean, or when you do something that's too broad or, you know, just doesn't quite work, you correct very quickly. So you don't subscribe to the idea of, oh, you don't watch your own performance at all? Not when you're making a film. I can understand people that don't want to see it once it's over. Uh, I mean, I can understand that, you know, 
that there's nothing because ultimately there's nothing you can do about it anymore. Right. So it could be deeply frustrating. But um, while you're doing it, yes, absolutely. Everyone should be involved and everyone should talk about it. And one thing it also dailies would also do is it makes everyone fallible on a, on a movie set. And so it's okay that that happens. It's okay that you're, you're making a mistake because we learn from our mistakes and we move forward and we don't make those mistakes again. But to not have that opportunity, it just robs something that was very, uh, I don't know, it was not only just great fun, but it was a, a way to, to build community on a movie set. You know, yeah. Oftentimes you'd go right from dailies to dinner, you know, you, you romances would develop, you know, things would happen, people would bond, people would go get drunk together. It, it was, it was, you know, a, a, a lot um, uh, more of a, a communal experience, I found. Was it not until that film that you discovered how directing a film can take over your life in a very different way than just acting in a film can? Yes, um, uh, and particularly in the editing process. I mean, yes, you have the pre-production and then it ramps up and you have maybe, th for that film we had three weeks, you know, of intense work. And then the shooting, you know, I think we shot four weeks of that film. And then it's the editing that I became obsessive with. I remember after finishing the editing on Cradle Will Rock, which was in 99, my youngest son, Miles, was seven at the time. Uh -huh. And he said, you know, Dad, I really like it better when you act. And I realized what he was saying was that I had not been there for the past, like, four months. Because, you know, even when I didn't have a deadline, I would stay late and because I was working on a scene and I wanted to get it right and I wanted to see another take of a uh, different take of an actor. And so, uh, yes, I became very obsessive in the editing process. That's why you stopped directing. Yeah, because I, after, that, after my seven-year-old said that, I realized, oh, whoa. I don't, I don't want that to be the truth. I, I want, uh, I want to know my children, and so I stopped uh, directing movies. It's funny because after you do Bob Roberts, both Bob Roberts and the player, they both play at Cannes that year, right? Yeah, yeah. And and uh, as Jack Black says, you were the king of Cannes. Yeah, year. I was the king of Cannes. <laughs> and uh, the de Cannes. I, I imagine. That must have felt, after that period, like opportunity must have been, like your life must have changed at that point. You did somewhat, yeah. Did you find yourself um, frozen with, like, what do I do next? Or did you worry about that? Or, no. Or did you see it as opportunity? I didn't really worry too much about, um, you know, when I was acting. Uh, I worried that I would make the wrong decision. I worried that I would fall into a pattern with, uh, you know, a certain kind of role. I didn't want to do that. I viewed myself as a character actor. I wanted to play different kinds of parts. Like right after Bull Durham came right, out. Right, I was just going to say I was Bull Durham. offered a bunch of those kinds of luggish, you know... Humorous, the, the jock, yeah. American. And it just was like, no, I've done that, you know? And a nice, really amazing script by Ron Shelton. I, and it was a great movie, and I've done that. So I don't need to do that. So 
I went for Eric the Viking instead, you know. You know right, that, right, which was a, that was a Python thing. Right? Yeah, it was a Python, a chance to work with the Pythons. This was like, yeah, absolutely. Now, whether they become great films considered in the pantheon of films or not, you can't always be in that film. There's no actor that's ever been in 35 seminal movies, you know. Right. But, There's no one with a, a score of 100 on the tomato meter. <laughs> Bob Roberts has a 100. Oh, it, it, Bob Roberts really? has a 100 on the Rotten Tomato. That's um, so. <laughs> okay, so there. So, uh, but basically, what I would not do was anything that was um, excessively violent. I I didn't want to do any movie that used uh, violence as entertainment. Violence is okay in movies if there's if you see the repercussions of the violence, the cost of violence. But just randomly shooting people, I just have a real hard time with that. And um, eventually, you know, you you get in a situation where you have enough money now, and now you can say no, and that and that's the real turning point I think for a lot of people is where you, how you use that money well, how it's you funny use you that, that security i think a lot of people don't ever feel like they have enough money i mean how much do you need right i mean i don't have a private jet well but, but it brings up you know again i feel like i feel like somehow it all connects back to the way you were brought up that that you saw money as an opportunity you saw it you know, you saw a paycheck as a way to fund your theater program, not to get your private jet. I, I don't know. It seems like it seems like that was built in from the start. It's it's just that, that when you have that decision, when you actually have enough money to live on, to support your family, put your kids to school, and you have the luxury of saying no, because I don't fault anyone that that is putting you know that is trying to make a mortgage for doing anything. You sure, know. it kind of brings up the idea that that somehow your career, time-wise, has straddled two eras of filmmaking. And I think Robert Altman is a great definer for the earlier era. Mm -hmm. um, there's a quote that, that I read here, and, and I think it came up in an interview of yours when, you, when someone asked you what's the best advice you ever received, and you said that Robert Altman told me that we have to follow our instincts and our talent and have the courage to sacrifice, to say no to the powerful, to keep what we're trying to do free and fun. Yes, and absolutely. I wonder why that was so stuck out to you so much, because I'm sure he told that to you at a time when all this stuff was happening. Yes. Your career was, you know, getting big. Yes, and thank God he was there, you know, because it, it gave me a, a, a affirmation of something that I instinctually felt, from an affirmation from a mentor that, you know, that said, yeah, that's the right way to do it. Because that's what you're talking about, really. And I think that you, your career has straddled these two sides. I think, I think in his era and up into the 90s a bit, you could be this sort of auteur that could walk into a studio, yeah. pitch somebody on something, and, and, and have them say, okay, let's make it. Yeah. And then didn't have to check with anybody. They didn't have to call, like, Japan and yeah. check with the Sony yeah. board of directors or something. But I wondered if that also influenced your decision or if, it, or if it contributed to your lack of enthusiasm about taking on another directorial project in film, is there still an opportunity to make the kind of films that, that you make? 
around when my son was, uh, you know, getting to be 16, 17, my youngest, I started thinking about getting back into it, and I saw the environment, and it, it is a corporate uh, environment. It's a tough one. I, I want to direct another film. I have a couple stories I want to tell. Uh, I have a certain budget that they, I, I want to do them for. Nothing astronomical, but I don't want to overwork a crew, and I don't want to exploit actors because they know me. And so um, there's a couple ideas that I have I'd love to do. It's just I have to have autonomy. It's, that's just the way I create. I, this is the way I create in theater. It's the way I created those three films. And if the uh, people that are, are the funders of this are uh, insane enough, like a lot of the people in the 90s were, to say, yes, I am on board and we'll have a great time doing it and it'll be a good film. It's, it's just, it's just I'm, I'm not in a real hungry desire to get involved in any kind of work-for-hire situation as a director. I, I have a too thick of a head to want to tolerate that kind of stuff. Well, it wouldn't make any sense also looking at the three films you've done that were completely autonomous and of your, you know, they came completely from you. You wrote all three of them. But I wonder where those maverick personalities are and if they have desire to make films now or if they want to do something else. Hi out there. (laughs) Oh! All it needs $10 million. See you soon. Call me. Uh, if that happens, I want it, I want an executive you producer. Want, you'll get an executive producer credit for that. Yeah. Well, you know, I thought about uh, coming off of your early directing experiences and and then going to act again after that because I, I'm assuming you learned a ton about yourself, not only how to direct a film and and how to see what works in the edit room or how to see what a rewrite looks like on a you know in the middle of production. But I imagine you learned about yourself as an actor, too, by directing Oh, tremendously. Yourself. Tremendously. I mean, from the first one. That's from Bob Roberts. Yeah. yeah. What, what did you find out from that process that you never could have found out if you didn't direct yourself? I learned that every minute counts, that when you're late to a set as an actor, it's abhorrent because you're actually taking time away from everybody because... When, when you're dealing with it as a director, you're going, shit, where are they? Shit, where are they? This means I have to now cut this thing. I don't, I'm not going to be able to cover this scene as well as I wanted to. Yeah. My original vision for this, now, okay, now now we're screwed. Now, Which is why I was surprised you were two hours late. Hours late today. Yeah, today. <laughs> I was ten no, you, minutes were, late. you were right on time. And no. there's a thunderstorm outside. <laughs> there is no, lightning. I, I think that every actor should should have to be on the other side in some capacity. Yeah. You know, and I would think that using yourself later as an editor... That's uh, also uh, uh, something you learn, is that instinctual thing you, you have about real behavior, like, I, I'm just saying a thing, I'm going to leave. And the director says, can you just wait a moment before you leave? And you go, no, that's, that, that's not real. My right? character wouldn't do that. Or whatever. Yeah. But... Then you realize in the editing room, yeah, you need that little moment because you want to be able to cut away to the other person and then leave. You see? So it's all these things, all these things you start learning when you're directing. In the editing room, you realize, oh, yeah, if he'd only just been there a moment, I would have a much better scene. You know? Right. Well, it made me wonder about Shawshank because 
after having that experience and then going and, and acting in a film under essentially a first-time director, uh -huh. Frank Darabont, I wondered, after you going through that experience directing and then, and then acting in that film, did it, did it become like a, a collaborative thing or, or, or was there, were, were you able to see where he was and sympathize with it or, you know, how did that relationship go? Well, I'll tell you something. Um, wasn't on my film, wasn't on Bob Roberts, but I'd been on a film where an, an actor was trying to direct and it's a freaking nightmare. It, you don't want that. Because everything I could tell you about the scene you're directing and th the way I would do it, which is probably true. But you also have your own truth about it. So you're making the film. You have to make your truth. If it becomes five different truths where five pe different people are directing the thing, it's going to be a mess. It's got to be one vision. Now, as an actor, you're responsible for your character and the truth of your character and conveying that to the director. And if there's something the director wants that is to totally against what you think, then you have to have a discussion about it. But you're not telling him where to put the frickin' camera. You're not telling him, uh, stay on me on a close-up here and then pull out. You know, sure. you're not doing any of that stuff. Because when that happens, it's quite frankly a nightmare. It's just, it's endless nails on the blackboard for everyone on the crew. It's just a nightmare. And what those people should do, what those actors should do, they should direct their own film. They should, they have to, in yeah. order to cure this. Illness, <laughs> but at the same time, you were coming in as I did. You know, I think one of the first films I did after I directed Bob Roberts was uh, Hot Sucker Proxy. I got to work with the Coen Brothers, and that was you know um, a great experience because they have their own genius, and I was able to observe that genius. And then to work with Paul Newman on that was like a dream come true. Oh, I'm it's sure, like, I'm just sure, like one of my heroes of all time, and. And so, uh, by the time I got to Shawshank, when I, when I got the offer for Shawshank, I was a little concerned about him being a first-time director, but I negotiated in my contract that um, I would have cinematographer approval. Really? Yeah. Because I was really loving Roger. Deacons? Yeah. But well, what was the intention of Roger Deacons? What, what did you think that would, like, how did that make it okay for you? Because I knew that I, there was going to be an excellent filmmaker on board. That if Frank needed help, that there would be someone that is uh, really incredible at what he does to give the film its look and uh, can probably help him w with, because I knew of his, his personality from working with him, I felt like he's the kind of person that could help right, a first-time right. director. So when you got Shawshank, d could you just tell immediately reading it that it was in a class of its, of its own? Well, it was a class of its own in the story that it was telling and that it resolved the way it resolved. That doesn't happen very often. A lot of happy endings are tacked onto films. They're not earned through a long process of a journey. Right, right. And this one got that. You got to the end of this thing and you went, oh my God, this, 
This is hopeful. This is life-affirming. It was a struggle to get there, but, but at the end, it's uh, about something. It's about the human uh, capacity to survive intellectually, spiritually, and physically. Yeah. This idea that, you know, hope can keep us alive. And I think the reason why that film has resonated so deeply with so many people is because it's a message we don't often hear in a genuine way from our entertainment. Um, it's, it's something that talks about the long game, not immediate uh, satisfaction. You know, so many of us feel trapped in our own lives because we got a shitty job, we hate our job, we are in a difficult relationship with our spouse, where, you know, whatever it is, I think metaphorically, Shawshank talks to all of those people yeah. about the idea that there is a place in the world, a beach in Zihuataneo for all of us. There is a moment that is achievable. It's, it's, it's just you have, to, you have to have patience and you have to keep very clear on who you are and what you want. And that eventually, hopefully, these kinds of things will happen. Were you surprised when it didn't initially find a large audience, or, or do you even concern yourself with that? I don't thing? really. I mean, yeah. I, 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 damn, it's like, you know, I've had so many movies not be seen that I am so proud of, you know, particularly in the last 10 years. The, um, you know, really, I think, really great pieces of work that just simply were not marketed properly or, or were not, uh, someone didn't have enough of a passion about to put $20 million of advertising into it. So, you know, it's a, a market decision at some point, you know. Uh, unfortunately, the downside of the independent film movement is that it became a bunch of boutique companies for studios to do less expensive films. And so when, when that's the, the situation, if they do 10 less expensive films and two of them get noticed, they put the money into those two and the other eight kind of fall by the wayside. You know, and, and you do a few of those and it, it becomes a little discouraging. You know, it's, right. it's you know. But uh, I did a movie called Secret Life of Words with Sarah Polly, directed by Isabel Quazette. It's a gorgeous, beautiful film, very small, quiet, personal film. It won awards in Spain, you know, the Goyas, and, you know, it's just... But in the United States, it was released in two theaters. So, how, so at the end of the day, I mean, between that and Code 46 and uh, Catch a Fire and Human Nature and uh, the one I'm in currently right now. A Perfect Day. Perfect Day. They're all great films, but, but will they find audiences? And, and the good news about now is that a film's release isn't its only life. Well, I, I hope people see A Perfect Day because... I, I feel like it's one of those films that it starts treading really lightly on a premise. And then once, once you sort of believe the premise, it can take you places. I, will that film be marketed in the right way? I don't know. But, and will it find an audience? And, and can, you, can you have word of mouth on something that doesn't hit you over the head anymore? Yes. I, well, I don't it's know. It's already been decided. This is probably not good promotional stuff. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it's real at least. But, it, but, they, but it's not going to be. So this is where I'm at. As I can have a sense of humor about this because it's happened before so many times to me. It's just it's that's okay because in the long run, that movie exists on my you know uh, part of my work, and and the the movies I mentioned earlier. They, they're all part of my story, and I'm proud of them, very proud of them. Maybe it's just redefining success in your mind yeah, to, to this mean, new age. That's a larger discussion uh, that we could do another half hour on, <laughs> which is what is success and what is happiness and, and how do we judge it and view that in Western society and why are we always on this hamster wheel of needing more success and how many people can actually just do something successful and then be content with that? I agree. But like, it's also a society where the, the success of something is wholly judged based on economics. That's right. It's not based on what it does to an audience. The, the, but the economists would say, well, if you, if, if you can't measure it, then its effect isn't important. And that's what the politicians say, too, yeah. with the funding for these kinds of programs, is that if you can't measure it, we've got to see hard data for it. And, and w- oftentimes, a film can provide something that no other medium can provide and get completely inside someone and change them. I've heard this thousands of times from people that saw Shawshank. I'm sure that, that was a great example. That, that, it, that it got inside them and it changed something fundamental about the way they were living their lives. And, and that's, that's the, what the power of the cinema and the power of art can achieve. But it can't achieve it in a room full of numbers crunchers. It, it, they will not identify the importance of a film. They will only identify the marketability of a film. I'm now at a point where I'm so zen about it, I'm like, of course they're going to make shitty decisions, right? This, like, um, the movie I did with Mark Ruffalo, uh, Thanks for Sharing, yeah, which yeah. is a really, I think, a great movie if you're, a, if you're an addict or don't know it or if, if you have know someone that's an addict. It's, it's a really helpful film, I think, in dealing with addiction. Yeah. And they marketed it as a romance between Gwyn- Gwyneth Paltrow and Mark Ruffalo. And it's just like, are you fucking kidding me? It's not a romance. Ah, uh, again. So I am used to it. Yeah. What we're getting is what, what they want us to get. You know, it's just, that's, that's it. There are great movies out there. It's just, they're not sexy enough. Or they're not going to, the margin of profit is not a, a, a large enough to want to go for it. And, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, they did quali- studios did quality movies and put their full marketing teams into it and their resources into it because they were proud of the idea that they were making artistic films for adults. And at the end of the day, when I'm looking back at my career, I can be very proud of this, these, those five films I just mentioned because they are great films. Now, the fact that they weren't commercial successes means, I guess it means something in, in the terms of what kind of opportunities are open to you currently. But again, in the long run, the long game is that they're quality. And I, I didn't shirk quality to 
gain money. It's kind of related to your initial questions is, is like, why are we doing this? What, what is the whole reason to be in this, this show business uh, deal? Uh, you could view it as a way to get really rich and famous, or you could view it as a way to try to create a sustained body of work that approaches some kind of artistic uh, um, quality. Yeah, well, you're creating this body of work, and, and it's funny that we're looking at that through the filter of Shawshank because I heard this interview that you did on Desert Island Discs on the BBC, which is yeah. a great show. Yeah. And you talked a lot about um, Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison, and that's one of your favorite records. And you, with the Actors Gang, are now doing uh, this thing called The Prison Project, which is essentially, and, and you can explain it better than me, but you, you were teaching acting to prisoners as a form of rehabilitation. Yes. A, a, based on Commedia dell'arte, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. So tell me how that started. Well, uh, a member of my company, a new member of my company at the time, Sabra Williams, came to me. She came to me and said, uh, can I start a prison project? And, I, and we have, we've always done outreach, uh, community outreach. Uh, and I said, all right, fine. And I gave her some seed money to go start it. And um, then became a teacher when I, when I, after I went to observe it. For whatever reason, this combination of a strong physical approach to acting combined with a demand for complete emotional honesty, somehow this combination wound up providing a way for these guys to, and women, to transform themselves. And it wasn't like we had any master plan. It was just that we observed and we realized, oh my God, this really works. The idea of, of, of understanding emotions the in, other, in a way that maybe gets you to look at your, your own emotions? Well, or? it's in actually actively playing the emotions. That, but here's the trick. They're playing them as a character, not as themselves. We're not psychotherapists. We don't want to deal with everyone's individual story. And so the idea with this is that it gives them a buffer. It gives, if I'm playing an old man, it's not me, right? So I can express emotions I don't usually express. And what happens is, they, in the course of an eight-week program, they get in touch with emotions they have not been in touch with. And, and there's basically one predominant emotion in prison. That's anger. Sure. You, to survive, you are a badass. When you're walking on the yard, you're a badass. With the people in your dorm, you're a badass, right? And one thing that we've heard again and again and again from these guys, from all of the groups we've done, is that they didn't realize that they were wearing a mask on the yard. That ah. that's not the real them. That they're not angry all the time. But they're putting that mask on to survive. And so this room allows them to express other emotions other than anger. So what they tend to learn in these improvisations is actually, well, I have a control over my emotions. I can choose a different emotion in emotions. this moment. And so they, it winds up diffusing emotions on the yard Amazing. and it winds up changing the culture of the freaking prison and so we just got studies in uh in december there's things called 115s which are infractions when you're in prison uh if you do something bad in prison you get a 115. okay the people that have been through our program 89 percent reduction in 115s 
Amazing. So it's working. So what we figured out was, oh my God, this is, we have a, now a moral responsibility to expand this. We have to. It's become our mission. We have to because it's working. It's helping people. It's not only helping those people, it's helping all of us. Because let's face it, the nine out of 10 people or more that are in prison right now are getting out at some point. Yeah. And they're going to be moving into our neighborhoods. And wouldn't you want them leaving prison with more tools to deal with disappointment or obstruction than when they went into prison? And so this actually gives them the emotional tools to deal with disappointment, to deal with altercation, to deal with hostility, to deal with any number of things that, of challenges that, that are there when you have been in prison for 20 years and now you're out and there's all this whole new world and you want people to behave in a certain way and they're not behaving that way. You know, we started this conversation talking about the actress gang being a laboratory and talk about like, uh, you know, an experiment that produced results that you had no idea and then, and then it, like, that's the most amazing laboratory experiment of all, right? Yeah. I think I couldn't have picked a better accidental person to get me into this business because you, you've panned out as a great mentor from afar, as someone who stands up for what they believe in, maybe even at the expense sometimes of, of some Hollywood relationships. I think that you, you've led a life that you practice what you preach and you kind of stand up for what I think this country should be, which is more tolerant, um, more interested in education and arts and, and understanding the value of that to our entire culture. And, and it seems like you live, you're living that life with what you're doing. And it's, it's, it's impressive and happy to know you. Thank you, Sam. Yeah. Thank you. I, I am happy to know you too. Well, and, uh, I'm happy to be living in, in California and in close proximity to the Actors Gang and yeah. participate in all these, these things. It's really been a, a, a lovely time in my life. Well, thank you for doing this. And, um, and you know, I'll, I'll be watching for the next film and for whatever you do. I think, I think you're just doing great work. So Thanks. thank you. Thank you. Hey folks, you've reached the end of another episode of Off Camera. I hope you're liking the show. And remember, if you want to get the full off-camera experience, go to offcamera.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at offcamerashow or me at Sam Jones. And if you want to get really personal, send me an email, sam at offcamera.com. And if you're not already subscribed to this podcast, go to iTunes and subscribe. And while you're there, take a minute on iTunes and give us a rating. Anything above four stars is acceptable. Make sure to tune in next time off camera.